0: Now friends, though we've come to a new chapter, we actually have not completed our subject that we began in the last chapter, which was, beginning with verse 3, how the little children may have fellowship with God. And we are now dealing with a family, and this is family truth. Now we saw in the first chapter, it's first by walking in the light. It's not how you walk, but where you walk that is important. That's the primary thing. You may feel like you're walking in fellowship with God when you really are not, because you have to walk in the light, and it is therefore where you're walking. And if you're walking in the light, then you can have fellowship with Him. And then the second thing that we must do if we'd have fellowship with our Heavenly Father Is by confessing sin. When we walk in the light, we know the blood of Jesus Christ keeps on cleansing us from all sin, but we know there is imperfection in our lives. And since there is, why, we confess our sins. Now we come here in chapter 2, in the first two verses, to the third matter that is mentioned, and that is the advocacy, the advocacy of Christ. And as we come here, we see now the conclusion, which actually began with verse 5, when he said, "...this then is the message." What is the message? Well, this is the message of the gospel of the grace of God that takes hell doomed sinners and by simple faith in Christ bring them into the family of God, where they are now heirs and joint heirs with Jesus Christ." And it's a relationship with the Father that is all-important now. And the thing that we have here as we open this is, My little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. And let's stop there for just a moment. He writes these to us because... God does not want His children to sin, and He has made ample and adequate provision for us not to sin. But our entrance into this is very imperfect, although He has provided a perfect entrance. We never enter in perfectly because of our imperfection. And this first sentence could be better translated, "...my little children..." "...these things write I unto you, that you may not sin." He didn't say that you can't sin, but you may not sin, because God wants us to walk in a way that will be well-pleasing to Him, actually in obedience to Him. What we have here in the chapter preceding, and in this one, in the first two verses, is how we may have fellowship with the Father. Now, this is family truth, and the reason that we have emphasized that is because there is such an overweening emphasis today on what has been termed body-life truth. It's the message of Ephesians, and it's great, and it is well that it's been emphasized because apparently a great many people didn't seem to know very much about it. But they need to move on just a little bit, farther into family truth. And that means that we are not just in a body where we are to function more or less like an IBM computer and you program a certain individual. And we've got so much of that today that if you follow a little ritual, a little regulation, and if you're programmed right and then you come to the end of the day, Why, you feel that little Jack Horner that sat in a corner, he was eating, I think, a plum pie, reached in his thumb, pulled out a plum and said, what a smart boy am I. Well, we've got a lot of that going on in the church today. We follow this little ritual. We feel very good if we think we've been able to pull out a plum. We've lived according to that little ritual. And yet, we may be walking out of fellowship with the Father, and there'll be no joy in our lives. And why? Well, because of the fact that we need to recognize that we're in a family. And in that family, the relationship is that which is all important, and that we need to have fellowship with the Father, our Heavenly Father. And therefore, family truth is very important. And this word here, my little children, is a very interesting word. In the Greek, it should be translated, my little born ones. Or the Scotch probably have the very best interpretation. They say, my little barns, my little born ones, my little born again ones. And these things I write unto you that you may not sin. Now, very few of us have reached that exalted plane. In fact, I've never met anyone that's reached that exalted plane. I've heard of them, but I've really never met anyone I thought had reached the place of sinless perfection. Always think of that whimsical story about the man making a speech in an auditorium one evening, and he was emphasizing the fact nobody's perfect. And finally, he became very dramatic and oratorical. And he said, is there anybody here that's ever seen a perfect man? And nobody moved at all, except way back in the back, one little fellow, Mr. Milktoast, put up his hand. And the speaker said, do you know a man that is perfect? And this little fellow stood up, and he says, well, I don't know him, but I've heard about him. Well, he says, who is he? Well, he says, "...it's my wife's first husband." May I say to you, I bet he'd heard about him a great deal. But the thing is that none of us have reached that exalted position. A speaker several years ago was telling this story about a family that were going to take a trip for a couple of days. They had a little girl in the family, but didn't want to take her along. And they left her with neighbors, and the neighbors had four boys." And so when they got back and got their daughter and were in their home, the little girl says, Daddy, there are four little boys in that house where I've been staying. And the father says, Yes, I knew that. And she said, Daddy, they have family worship there every night. And he said, Well, I'm glad to hear that. And she says, Well, Daddy, every night their father prays for those four little boys. And this man says, Well, that certainly is good to hear. And she says he prays, Daddy, that God will make them good boys and that they won't do anything naughty. And he said, well, that's very fine. And she's silent a moment, and then she added, but Daddy, he hasn't done it yet. Well, I think that most of us, if we're honest with ourselves, we have to say God hasn't done it yet. We haven't reached that exalted plane. And so he says here, my little born ones, my little barns, these things write I, unto you that ye should not be sinning, that you may not be sinning. God doesn't want you to live in sin. And we are going to find, however, that a little later on, he's going to make the statement, whosoever is born of God, does not commit sin. Well, I'm not going into that now, but that means does not practice sin, live in sin. The prodigal son got up out of the pig pen. He never stayed there. Why? Because he's a son. But we need also to recognize, as Scripture says in Ecclesiastes 7.20, there's not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. And that you and I may be able to say, well, I don't think I've done anything real bad. But how about doing good? You remember just not long ago we were in James and we saw to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not to him, it's sin. So there's sins of commission, there's sins of omission. And you and I need to walk in the light. Now, when we walk in the light, we see how far we have fallen short. Now, every sincere child of God wants to have Fellowship with God, and yet he knows that in his own self, in his own life, that he's falling far short, and that sin in his life, be it ever so small, breaks communion with the Father. It breaks our fellowship with him. It is said a Spurgeon that he was crossing the street, stopped, and looked like he was praying because he was praying. One of his deacons waited for him on the other side of the street because he saw him coming. And he said to him, well, it wasn't the day of the automobile. He said, you could have been run down by a carriage standing there. He says, what were you doing? Looked like you were praying. Spurgeon says, I was. Well, the man said, what was so important? Well, he said, a cloud came between me and my Savior. And I wanted to remove it even before I got across to the other side of the street. Well, today there are a great many Christians that are living A lie, in which they are constantly disobeying God, and they wonder why they're not having fellowship with God at all. Now, they need to recognize, and we need to recognize, that this has to do with fellowship and communion. It doesn't mean that we've lost our salvation, because the next sentence in chapter 1 says, "...and if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father." Jesus Christ the righteous. And if you'll notice, it's not an advocate with God. It's with the Father. He's still our Father when we sin. And therefore, we need to recognize that our salvation rests upon what Christ has done for us. And that's a finished work. It's been put like this. Upon a life, I did not live. Upon a death, I did not die. Another's life. Another's death, I stake my whole eternity. It is finished. Yes, indeed. Finished every jot. Sinner, this is all you need. Tell me, is it not? Well, that's all we need for salvation. But now, if you and I are going to have fellowship with him, we need to recognize something else now. If any man sin, what happens? Well, we have an Advocate with the Father. And who is he? He's Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's a comforter. That's the word that's really used. It's spoken of the Holy Spirit. He's our comforter down here, and Christ is our comforter up there. And this is a legal term, and has to do with the question of sins as believers. Because when we sin, we have a wonderful Heavenly Father, and we don't lose our salvation but there's somebody up there that wants us to lose it, and that's Satan. And so Satan is an accuser of the brethren, we're told. In Revelation twelve ten, it says, "...the accuser of our brethren, which accused them before our God day and night." And Satan is there to accuse. You remember, he sure found fault with Job. He said, if you let me get to him, I'll show you how weak he is. Well, the Lord Jesus is able to step in as our advocate. And he is the one that died for us. He says, he's my child. Yet the accuser is there. And a great many people are disturbed about that. Well, we've got an advocate, and he's greater than the accuser. And as it's been put again in very beautiful language, I hear the accuser roar of ills that I have done. I know them well and thousands more. Jehovah findeth none, though the restless foe accuses. Sins recounted like a flood, every charge our God refuses. Christ has answered with his blood. Now, he is the propitiation, we are told here, for our sins. Now, the word propitiation back in Romans meant mercy seat. Here, it's just a little bit different, and it means actually expiation, or atonement, and it means that sins have been paid for by the suffering of another. Now, Christ has died, and because he died for us, we're God's child. Why, he is the propitiation for our sins. It doesn't say if any man repent. It doesn't say that we have an advocate because of that. And it doesn't say we have an advocate if any man confesses his sins. And it doesn't say we have an advocate if a man weeps over his sin. And it doesn't say we have an advocate if a man goes through a ceremony in order to get rid of the sins. No, if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. And it's Jesus Christ that does that. The moment that you and I said that, rather cruel, brutal word to someone and hurt them. The moment that you and I had that evil thought, the moment that you and I did that evil act, Jesus Christ was there to represent us. And the sincere child of God wants to please the Father. And he walks along with that in mind, as the psalmist expressed it in Psalm 139:23. Search me, O God, and know my heart, try me, And know my thoughts. And every child of God wants, therefore, to please the Father. And thank God we have propitiation. Now, that means Christ is really our mercy seat. He is the one. Friends, you see, Christianity today is not a ritual. It's not a ceremony. It's not a system. And it's not even the church. Christianity is a person And that person is Christ. He is our mercy seat. Now, he's a mercy seat for the whole world. I don't care who you are listening today, as this little jingle we gave a few moments ago had it. Sinner, isn't this enough for you to have a Savior that took care of the sin question for you? Therefore, you and I have an advocate. And since we have an advocate, we can have fellowship with God. What a marvelous provision that has been made. And all that he asks us to do is to confess our sins. And as we said before, to confess means that we get on God's side. And we say it from his viewpoint. And as he wants it said. Dr. Ironside tells a story about his two boys. He admitted that they weren't perfect, as my child wasn't. And he had trouble one evening, one of the boys, and he sent him upstairs not to come down to supper until he had confessed the thing he had done that was wrong. He wouldn't admit it at all. And the boy called him to come upstairs, and Dr. Ironside went up, and he says, "'I want to go down to supper.' And he says, "'Well, that depends on you. Confess that you're wrong, and you may come down.' Well, he says, "'If you think I've done anything wrong, I'm sorry.'" And Dr. Einstein says, that won't do. And so the boy called him up again. And this time he changed his story a little. He says, well, since you and mother both think it's wrong, I guess it is. And I want to come down to supper. Well, he said, that's not enough. Then he went down and in a little while he heard the boy almost weeping. And he said to him, Daddy says, please forgive me. I know I've done wrong. Please forgive me. Then they came down and they had a wonderful dinner together. Fellowship, you see. We're in a family. That's the thing that's important today. I don't care about these little rules that you're following and you think that somehow or another that you are going to live the Christian life like that. My friend, God doesn't want you to be a programmed computer. He's not trying to make that out of you. You're a human being with your own free will. But you're a member of his family, and he wants to have fellowship with you. And I think we can talk to him as we talk to no one else. That brings us now to the second major division that we have here in this little epistle. And that is, God is love. And beginning at verse 3 now, and going all the way down through verse 21, while we're dealing with a section, And the first part of it, the first 14 verses here, how the dear children may have fellowship with each other. Now, before it was walking in light. Now, it's going to be walking in love. And that's the thing that he's going to talk about. Now, will you notice verse 3? "...and by this we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments." Now, let me say that this hasn't anything to do with the security of the believer. We're not talking about that. We're talking about assurance. We're in a family. How do I feel now I'm a member of this family? I may be a child of God, and I could be in a far country. But we want to sit down at the table with the Father. Now, how are we to have assurance? The way you can have assurance by keeping His commandments. Now, friends, we're not talking about the Ten Commandments now. We're not talking about that which is legal. We're talking about a family. That which is legal, the Ten Commandments, were given to a nation. And on those, every civilized people have based their laws on the Ten Commandments. They are for the unsaved. Now, God has something for His family, and there are commandments for His family. You will find that mentioned For instance, in the 6th chapter of Galatians, and I didn't intend to turn there, but I think I shall, he says, "...bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ." We're talking about the law of Christ now. When we were back in 1 Thessalonians not too long ago, I called attention to that, verse 2 of chapter 4. "...for ye know what commandments we gave you, of the Lord Jesus. Well, what are some of them? Well, in the last chapter, chapter 5 of First Thessalonians, I have listed 22 commandments that are there. Listen to one or two of them. Verse 16 of chapter 5, Rejoice evermore. He wants you to be a joyful Christian. 17, Pray without ceasing. That is the attitude of prayer. It means to get off of your knees and still walk on your feet in a prayerful attitude. Praying is not all done on your knees. It's done on your feet. It's right down where the shoe leather is, friends. And we are told to quench not the Spirit. And we're to prove all things. These are commandments that the Lord Jesus has given to believers. And if we are to have fellowship with the Father and enjoy it and have an assurance in our own heart, we must keep His commandments. Don't say that we are free to do as we please. A Christian doesn't do as he pleases. He does as Christ pleases, and that's all important. Now, he says, and by this we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Now, commandments here means the commandments that the Lord Jesus has given to the church. And I'll make a distinction in just a few moments between the commandments and the Word of God. There is a distinction, and I think we can demonstrate it in just a moment. But the important thing is that this is something we do know, that we know Him. This is not a no-no, this is a yes-yes, but it's something that we do know. And you remember, He's answering all through this epistle, the Gnostics, and they pretended they knew something That is, they were super-duper saints. They had some knowledge that no one else had. In general, it was heresy. By this, we do know that we know him. And the important thing is to know Jesus Christ. Now, how can we have the assurance of it? Well, a great many people, as we've said before, believe in the eternal security of the believer, but they don't have the assurance of salvation And the reason is obvious, if we keep his commandments. Now, he's not saying that we're not saved, but he's saying this, that we have an assurance. We know, and you can't know if you're disobedient unto him. In other words, obedience to Christ is essential, and it's the very basis of assurance. You cannot have, or you can bluff your way through, but you can't have that deep down, way down in your heart assurance unless you keep His commandments. And so here, He's dealing with that. And He's dealing with it in a very, let me say, a very definite way here. We do know, and this is something we should know. Now, in verse 4, He says, He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Now, I would say that that is very plain talk. I would say that that is very blunt speech. In other words, what he's saying is this. We do know, verse 3, that is, we know by experience. We know that. And that is in contrast to that esoteric knowledge of the Gnostics. Now, this is the negative. Disobedience to Christ is a proof that we do not know him. This is plain and it's direct language. Disobedience to Christ on the part of a professing Christian is tantamount to being a liar. In other words, the life is a lie, and this is putting it rather blunt, there are a great many people today that say I'm a child of God. But are they a child of God? It's one thing to say I'm a child of God and to say I'm a Christian, and it's another thing to be a possessor of eternal life, to have a new nature that cries out to the Father and calls Him Father and wants to obey Him and loves His Word. You can't make me believe today that all of these church members that have no love for the Word of God, and they're disobedient to Christ, you can't make me believe that they are really God's children. I don't think so. Don't believe that could be true at all. And just to say I'm a child of God, that's one thing. But to know the experience of regeneration, that's something else. And therefore, John's making it very clear here. We do know that we know him because we keep his commandments. And as we saw, we're not talking about the legal commandments of the Old Testament, but the commandments that he's given to the church. And if a child of God does not have a love for those commandments, he's in the very gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity, as the Scripture puts it. The Lord Jesus, when he was here in the flesh, said, I do always those things that please him. Well, I can't say that. But I can say, I want to please him. And I have dedicated my life to that. And I find that I fall and stumble. But my beloved, I want to please him. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. But this corroborates his faith when he's able to know in his heart, I want to do God's will. And the natural man never did want to do God's will. And he puts it here, oh boy, is this strong. He that saith, I know him and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar. Now, I didn't say that, friends. John said that. And then John would tell you that the Holy Spirit's the one that prompted him to say it. And the truth is not in him. A man that makes a statement like that. Now, we read verse 5. But whosoever keepeth his word in him verily is the love of God perfected by this. Know we that we are in him. Now, I want to make a difference here and a distinction that I find that very few expositors make. In fact, I notice that the New Schofield Reference Bible does not make a good distinction here. And I feel that there's a difference between the Word of God and the commandments of God. Now, somebody's going to call my attention down here to the fact that the commandments are the Word of God. Well, the commandments are the Word of God. But the Word of God is not commandments. It's more than that. I hope that you see the distinction. There are commandments in the Word of God, but the Word of God is not commandments. Therefore, here you have just a portion in the commandments of the will of God. In the Word of God, you have His complete revelation to us about His will for our lives. Now, we have here, therefore, this distinction now the Lord Jesus made the statement. He says, If ye love me, he says, Keep my commandments. That's in John fourteen fifteen and then in John fourteen twenty-three he says, If a man love me, he'll keep my words. Now what is the distinction there? Well, I think that we could put it like this. Let me give a very homely illustration. Others have used it in a little different way. But let me give it like this. Here is a young boy in a home, and it's a home in the country. His father's a farmer. And his father says to his son, the boy's going to school. He says to the boy, he says, now, son, when you get home from school today, I want you to chop wood, and I want you to get the wood on the back porch so your mother can get it to make a fire in the cook stove and for the fireplace. And so when the boy comes home, he obeys his father. His father's commandment is that he chop wood. And that boy goes out there, and for about an hour and a half or two hours, he chops wood after school. Then he spends time bringing it in and stacking it up on the back porch. And I can tell you about a boy that used to do that. And that is a long time ago, and his name was Vernon McGee. Now, I don't know that I could use myself in the rest of the illustration that I'm going to give. Now the father said to the boy, he says, "Now when I get home from the field, I'll milk the chows." Now one day, the father says, "Well, I don't feel good today." The breakfast table, he says, "I feel so bad, I don't think I ought to go out." and work in the field today. But he goes on out. Now, when the boy comes home, his commandment is to chop wood. So he chops all the wood. Now, he knows his father is sick, and he knows it's his father's word that he doesn't feel like milking the cows. So the boy goes up and milks the cows. Now, that he was not commanded to do. He did that because he loves his father. Now, a child of God wants to obey not only the commandments, but he wants to obey the Word of God. That is, he wants to please the Father in everything that he does. I get the impression from some Christians, the way they talk is this. Well, how far can I go in my conduct and still be a Christian? They ask questions like this. And I never would answer them for young people. Is it all right for a Christian to dance? Is it all right for a Christian to go to the movies? Is it all right for a Christian to do this, that, and the other thing that used to be the no-nos for the Christian? I never would answer them because they're asking the wrong question. What is the right question to ask? The right question is, what can I do to please my heavenly Father? What can I do to please Christ? You see, a child of God wants to please him. And I always suspect these people that are trying to live right on the margin and right on the very fringe of the Christian life, and they want to go as far as they possibly can. I know that there are Christians today that they like to feel they're broad-minded, and they have beer, and they have wine against alcohol, apparently, that is, whiskey, but not this other way. And so they feel like they're very broad-minded, and they feel like I'm very narrow-minded. Well, may I say to you, it's not a question of whether this is right or wrong. I hope that you are above that plane today, Christian friend. I hope you are at the place today where you say, I want to please my Heavenly Father. I want to do the thing that will please Him, and it will bring joy to his heart and joy to my own life, and I can have fellowship with him. That is the thing. And we're to do this on the basis of love. If you love me, keep my commandments. Then he says, if you love me, you will keep my word. You'll go farther than the commandments. You're going to just do something very extra for him. I think that a great many folk, confine themselves to sins of commission, and forget about sins of omission. To him that knoweth to do good, and doeth it not, to him it's sin. There are a lot of things that I know that I should do, and I don't do them. Because I don't do them reveals the fact that it's a sin of omission. And Those sins are just as bad, I think, as the other. Now, let me keep reading here again, and let me get verse 5 before us again, because it's so important. He says, "...but whosoever keepeth his word in him verily is the love of God perfected," or perfected, however you want it, "...by this know we that we are in him." Now, here we have, "...keepeth his word." The word of God then is perfected in him." He's gone past the commandments, and he just wants to please God. And that's what a child of God ought to do. What is your attitude towards sin? It's not that you have sinned, but what is your attitude toward it, Christian friend? Don't tell me you don't sin, because I know you do, and I don't even know you, because I know myself. Now, what do you do when you sin? Does it hurt you? Does it trouble you? Does it break your fellowship with the Father? And does it cause you to cry out in the night, Oh, God, I'm wrong. I want to come to you and confess this. I've been wrong. I want fellowship with you. And may I say that on that basis, you'll restore fellowship with us. And then that's the way assurance comes to our heart. Now, let me read on down here in verse 6. He that saith, he abideth in him, ought himself also so to walk, even as he walked. In other words, the Lord Jesus is our example. And we can't perform miracles. There are many things we can't do that he did. But we can at least want to do the Father's will. And that is the thing that the Lord Jesus put uppermost in his heart, and in his life. And so when he says here that when Christ is manifest in the believer, when he keeps the word of Christ, and I hear a great deal today about the word commitment. Do you want to commit your life to Christ? What do you mean by that? I hear that so much today. Well, let me tell you what it means here. Full commitment is to love Christ. And if you love Christ, He says that you're going to keep his word. You can't help it. You want to please the person that you love. You don't like to offend the person that you love. You want to please them. That's the reason every now and then I send my wife a dozen American beauty roses. That's the way I started off with her, because I had to sidetrack a couple of other fellas and way back yonder. And so I have started out doing something they hadn't thought of doing. I sent a dozen American Beauty Roses. I want to please the one I love. Now, the question is not, are you committed? But do you love Christ? That's the important thing today. Do you love Christ? And that is the thing that's all important. Now, I come to a very important verse here. brethren. I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment which ye had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which ye have heard from the beginning. Now, what word was it they heard from the beginning? Well, let's go back and look at this for just a moment. The beginning here in 1 John is the incarnation of Christ. It began in Bethlehem, and it worked itself out in a carpenter shop, and then three years of his ministry, ending on a cross and not really ending there because he was put in a grave and it didn't end there. And he came forth the third day. And so what we have here is a commandment that goes back. And it means the commandment that he gave because he's saying, I'm not giving you anything new. You heard this from the very beginning And if you go back to John 13, you'll hear the Lord Jesus speaking there. He says, "...a new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another, as I have loved you, that ye also love one another." And then if you drop over to the 14th chapter, verse 21, I read there, "...he that hath my commandments, and keepeth them..." He it is that loveth me, and he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I love him and will manifest myself unto him. Then go on over to the 15th chapter at verse 10. He says, If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Now, this is the old commandment. Now, John says, this old commandment is what I'm giving to you. It's what the Lord Jesus said. It's what he taught when he was here upon this earth. Now he says, again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is past and the true light now shineth. Now why is it a new commandment to believers today who are regenerated and indwelt by the Holy Spirit? Why? Because... That was given on the other side of the cross and the coming of the Holy Spirit. Now, on this side, it's new. This is something new today. And believers are to do the will of God. And the will of God primarily, first of all, is to love Him. Oh, how important that this is here. And this is something That identifies a believer. A believer is one that delights in the will of God. And a believer ought to be able to say, because the true light, the darkness is past, and the true light now shines. Day by day, moment by moment, I ought to be able to say, I'm getting to know the Lord better. I'm understanding His will more perfectly. That ought to be the experience. Schiller, the great German poet, said, I see everything clearer and clearer. And that ought to be the experience of every child of God today, that day after day you ought to be growing. And you can't grow apart from the Word of God. There's no way. It's food, and He's the bread of life that's revealed here. He's the water of life. You're going to perish, you famish, if you don't feed upon Him. And the problem, the great problem today is that a great many are trying to follow a few little rules and regulations. And again, let me say it, they're programmed like an IBM computer. And they feel like that they run through all those little things, do them, everything will work out. My friend, you're a human being. If you're a child of God, you've got a new nature. And you've still got that old nature. But as Paul says, I know within my flesh dwelleth no good thing. But Paul says, I want to do His will. Is that the thing that's in your heart and life? Now, I can point the verses of Scripture to you for your assurance. But my friend, you will never experience them until you're willing to do His will. Now, let me come to this again. He says here, And I'm going to pick up at verse 8. Again, a new commandment. I write unto you which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing. That is the better expression here. The darkness is passing. You can look around you today. It hasn't passed yet, but it is passing. The fog of ignorance of God's Word is still much in evidence today, the darkness is passed, and the true light now shineth. That is, the true light, which is the Lord Jesus Christ, is breaking into this world today. He still is the most controversial person that's ever lived on this earth. Now, verse 9, "...he that saith he is in the light, and hateth his brother, is in darkness." even until now. Now, loving a fellow believer is the test of genuine faith. And hatred of a fellow believer is evidence that a person is not in the light. And that is something that we need to keep in mind. Now, we need to recognize here that this is the natural darkness in which all men are born. That is the thing Paul talked about in Ephesians 4.18, when he says, "...having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart." Now, that's the condition of man by nature. But our condemnation is not because of what we are by nature. This is the condemnation that light is coming to the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Now, this is something that is very important. Don't let this slip by you. You are not responsible because you're a sinner but nature. But you are responsible if you reject the Savior. You are not responsible because you were born... In darkness, because your understanding is dark. But you are responsible if you reject the light that comes to you through the Word of God. Now, this light, which today will chase away all the darkness if you walk in it, instead of turning from it, searching rays, let it search your heart. Now, if man will just keep on rejecting light, there may come a day when God will withdraw the light or they'll become sunburned. Esau was that kind of man. It means red. He was sunburned. And he was sunburned not just physically. He was sunburned spiritually. Do you see what is sunburned? It means that the skin will absorb all the rays of the light except one particular ray, and that's what burns. And the soul that will not accept Jesus Christ, the light of the world, he's sunburned just as Esau was. Now, there is a picture that's given to us here, and that is, what is the test that you're in darkness? He that hateth his brother is in darkness. He walketh in darkness, and he knoweth not whither he goeth, because that darkness hath blinded his eyes. Now, Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of light. Now, Have you truly trusted him? Is he your light? Is he your life today? Is he the one that is guiding you so that you are not hating your brother? Now, you may have a dislike for his habits, a distaste for some of his expressions. And there are some people that our personalities, we just clash with them. And there's nothing you can do about that. But it doesn't mean you hate them. I remember when I was in seminary and I roomed with a fella and he had some of the meanest habits for a Christian. He could start singing at night after I went to bed and was asleep. He could just start singing and he wouldn't sing all day long. But by 11 o'clock at night, he's ready to tune up. And he had a lot of mean habits like that. And so I told him one day, I said, you know, You are the greatest proof to me that I'm a child of God. He says, what do you mean? Well, I said, to me, you are the most nauseating. You are the most sickening Christian that I've ever met. But I said, you want to know something? I love you. (laughs) And you know, he looked right at me and he said to me, he says, I want you to know that you are the most abominable Christian I've ever met. And I want you to know that you're the hardest person in the world to love, but I love you. And you know, that fellow got in some trouble years later, and I made a trip over to see him, to try to help him out if I could. And when I got there, he wasn't any more lovely than he was in our room with him. He was more objectionable, and I think I was to him. You don't have to hate him. That fellow was a child of God. And God marvelously used that young fellow in the ministry. And he was a great fellow. I don't know why today Christians, when they find out they don't like somebody, they think the only alternative is to hate them. You don't have to hate them at all. But you're to love them. And you can love them as a child of God. But that doesn't mean you'd like to be around A Christian that sings at 11 o'clock at night when you're asleep. You don't care about rooming with a fellow like that. That is for sure. And I think that is what he's talking about. Now, here is just a little bit of poetry that sets this before us. I heard the voice of Jesus say, I am the dark world's light. Look unto me, thy morn shall rise, and all thy days be bright. I looked to Jesus And I found in him my star, my sun. And in that light of life I'll walk till traveling days are done. This is a tremendous statement, you see. He that hateth his brother is in darkness, walketh in darkness, and knoweth not where he goeth, because darkness hath blinded his eyes. Today, that's a test of whether you're a child of God or not. Hating your brother is dwelling in darkness. Loving a brother is dwelling in light. Now, the Christian life is actually a triangle. And it's a triangle like this. And here's a triangle that's good. Draw a straight line across the bottom of the page, horizontal with the bottom of the page. Then up at the top of the page, put the name God. And he's light and love and life. Then draw from one end of the straight line at the bottom of the page, draw another straight line up to God. And then put your name right there at that corner. And you see God is up at the top. And the light of God comes down into your heart and life. And then the love of God also comes down. But your love for Him goes up because we love Him because He first loved us. Now, at the other end of the baseline, draw a line from there up to God, a straight line. Well, light has come down and love has come down to this other believer because that's another believer at that end of the triangle. Now, if you are walking in light down here, it means also you're going to love your brother. You can't say you love God and hate your brother. That is impossible, as John's going to make it very clear a little later on. He'll come back to this. Now, it seems to me we have more or less of a departure from the theme that he's been following, and he begins now to talk about the three different classes of believers that he has here. He mentions the three different, I should say, degrees of believers. Now, in verse 12, let me read. I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. Now, these little children, here in the word is technia, it means dear children, are little born ones again. And I think that means all believers, regardless of their age or their maturity as believers, that's the basis on which all of us rest. Our sins are forgiven us on the basis of the shed blood of Christ. And notice that. That's important. I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. Now, some stay in that position of little children. And don't move out of that area. Now, we move to another group in verse 13. He says, "...I write unto you fathers, because ye have known him that's from the beginning." Now, the fathers are these saints that have known the Lord Jesus for many years. And they've grown. They have matured. And they are mature saints who've walked with God for years. Now, personally, I think David wrote the 23rd Psalm after he was an old man. David could never have written that Psalm as a young man when he was a shepherd. Because this is a Psalm that grows out of an experience and of a life that can back it up. A life that's been through all sorts of vicissitudes, has faced all kinds of problems, been in all kinds of dangers. And it's a life that has been lived in fellowship with God. And when David wrote the 23rd Psalm, he is a mature child of God. And friends, I mean by that time, he was really a mature child of God. He had grown up. He could be truly said to be a father. I have called it the Psalm of an old king. David, I think, was sitting on the throne. He's an old man now. And he looks back over his life, and he remembers that shepherd boy that was out there on the hillside at Bethlehem. And how that shepherd boy would take the flock out, how he would protect it from a bear and a lion, and how he would take care of the sheep, and how he protected the sheep. And then he's made king, and he's now a shepherd of a people. He's king over them. And as he sits there on the throne, he looks back over that life, oh, that checkered career, the time that he had such a wonderful friendship with Jonathan, and the time that he fled from Saul, and then how he became king, and for seven years down yonder in Hebron, he reigned as king. That's right south of Bethlehem. And how God delivered him and gave him all of the twelve tribes. And he ruled over them. And then David committed that awful sin. And how God forgave him when he came back in confession. And then David had trouble in his home because God took him to the woodshed. And this man had nothing in the world but trouble the rest of his life. Now his own son rebels against him. And he loved that boy. He wanted him to be the next king, but not to rebel against him. David fled from Jerusalem, had to hole up again in the rocks. And then that boy and his followers were slain. And it broke David's heart. But now David is an old man. He's sitting on the throne. And he looks back over his life. And he says, Now the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Now, he didn't say, I have not wanted. He could have said that. But this man now, a mature child of God, can say, I shall not want. Then he gives those experiences of how he was led down by green pastures and down by still waters and how God had watched over him. May I say to you, John now is writing to little children, but he's also writing to fathers. These are mature saints of God. And there are a lot of those around today, and I always thank the Lord for them. And then he says something else here in verse 13. I write unto you, young men, because ye have overcome the wicked one. Now, the young men, they're not as mature as the fathers That is, they haven't had the experience the fathers have, but they've learned the secret of overcoming the enemy by the blood of Christ. They have learned how to live for God, and they're strong. They're strong, but they are young men. They've overcome the wicked one. Don't tell me that a young person can't live for God today. Then he goes on to say it in verse 13 again, "...I write unto you little children, because you have known the Father." Now, you can't say much for the little children. These are eye, immature little folk. They're those who know they're the sons of God. But you know that's all they know? Well, I guess some of them feel like that's all they want to know. But how many children of God there are today, immature little babies... Why, some churches today, you think you're in a spiritual nursery. So many little babies around. Oh, they're full grown. Some of them with gray hair on top of their head. Some of them no hair at all. But they're little babies. They never did grow up. They have accepted Christ. I'm not going to argue they're not God's children. Now, will you notice? He says, verse 14 now, I have written unto you fathers because ye have known him that's from the beginning. Now, the fathers have reached spiritual maturity over a long period of time. They knew the Lord Jesus from the time he was here on the earth. That's the beginning. And then he says here to the young man, he says, I've written unto you, young man, because you're strong, and the word of God abideth in you, and you've overcome the wicked one. Now, then he says to the fathers... Because you've known him, that is, from the beginning. Now, that means the beginning of the coming of Christ into the world. That is, you have known him, that is, the Lord Jesus, from his incarnation through his life till the time he was crucified on the cross and raised from the dead. Paul mentioned, Paul said even at the end of his life when he wrote Philippians, He says, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection. Now, this is not something that's theoretical. How do you know somebody? Well, you know somebody by living with them day by day. I have discovered that my wife knows me. She's lived with me nearly 40 years, and she knows me very well. And you want to know something? I know her very well. And this summer, we really got acquainted with each other. We had time for the first time since we were married to sit on our back patio and just sit and talk. And we talked about many things from the time that we met, even before we met, down to the very present. This past summer is the greatest summer I ever spent, and yet I was sick during that time. It was really a wonderful experience. Well, I know her. She knows me. Now, how are you going to know the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, friends, the only way you can know him is in the Word of God. And a great many people, they feel that if they go to a Bible study once a week, or they go to a little course that they take, that somehow or another that they are super-duper saints. My friend, the Word of God is like food. And it's wonderful to go to these Bible studies once a week, I've conducted Bible study once a week over the years, and I certainly approve of it. But imagine going in and eating a good meal and then saying, well, I'll be back in a week and I'll have another meal with you. Well, that's no good. That's the reason we believe that a daily radio program is so important today, because we give food here once a day, and in many areas, we're now giving it three times a day. And I was speaking at a church yesterday, and there were quite a few radio listeners there. One lady came up to me and made the statement. She says, I listen to you three times a day, because we're on that here in Southern California. And another one right back of her heard her say it. She says, well, I do too. And be honest with you, they hear the same thing, and I'd get very tired of hearing the same thing myself. But nevertheless, that's the way we're to grow through the Word of God. This is the bread of life. And if we are to know Christ, we're to live with Him. And He's to live with us. And that's the way you can come to know Him. This is not theoretical. This is not something that's nice, idealistic, and to hear it and write it in a notebook And then forget about it. The question, and let's just get right down now where the rubber meets the road. Do you live with Christ? How about it? I hear many people say, well, I lost my mate and I'm living alone now. And many others write and say, though I've lost my mate, I have the Lord Jesus with me and I'm not alone. May I say to you, it's all right to live with him. I don't care who you are. If you live with him, it will enable you to grow. And that's the thing that he's talking about here. Now, he says something else here. I've written unto you young men because you're strong and the word of God abideth in you. Now, when he said the young men were strong before and they were able to overcome the wicked one, he didn't mention the fact that the word of God abideth in you. Now, he gives the secret. How are you going to overcome the wicked one? Well, through the Word of God. And the Word of God says they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. It's when you rest in the Lord Jesus Christ, and he becomes personal to you, and becomes real to you, and you can talk with him. I ride along in my car a great deal by myself. I always talk with him when I'm by myself, and I know that it seems strange, I... Had a woman drive up by the side of me at a street light, and I was just talking away. I was praying, but I just do it in a very informal manner, and I was telling the Lord Jesus about myself, and not that He didn't already know, and I was asking Him for help. This woman looked over at me, and she looked to see if somebody was in the car. She saw there wasn't anybody in the car, and here I was talking. So she just took her index finger and went around her head, which she obviously meant that she thought I was off. Didn't have all my marbles or something. Well, may I say to you, I don't care what she thinks, the important thing is that we need to know him. We need to know him. And we can know him in his word. Now, will you notice, we're told here that you can overcome the wicked one. How can you overcome the wicked one? With the word of God. What is it called? Well... The only weapon of offense that's ever been given to a believer is the Word of God, which is the sword of the Spirit. And I tell you, if you're going to be able to defend yourself against the devil, you're going to need the Word of God. And the reason so many believers are succumbing today to the world is simply because they're not in the Word of God. I don't care how many of these little courses you take, and I don't care... Whether you go to a Bible study once a week, I've done that for years. And I find that a great many people do not mature. And yet a great many others do. Why? Because they stay in the Word of God. You need to eat three times a day. And believe me, if you need physical food to be strong, you sure do need spiritual food to be strong. Now as we come again to our text today, this is a section that a great many separate from what has followed, but actually I feel it's very much a part of what he's been talking about and that it is really not a separate thing at all. You see, he's been telling us how we as God's children how we can know that we are his children. And the way that we can know it is by the fact that we love him and that we keep his commandments. And later on, he's going to say his commandments are not grievous. Now, we're not even talking about the Ten Commandments here. We actually are talking about the commandments that the Lord Jesus gave. And here we are brought actually into the Holy of Holies in a very personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Someone has made this kind of a division, and I like it, in the epistle to the Romans, is how we come out of the house of bondage. In Ephesians, is how we enter the banqueting house. Hebrews is how we approach the throne of grace and in First John, how we approach the divine presence. Now, you and I can have assurance that we're a genuine child of God, not only be a proof to our neighbor that we're a child of God, but to ourselves because of our obedience unto Him, and that we want to please the Lord Jesus in all that we do. And that is the motive for obedience to Christ. If you love me, keep my commandments. And that is the thing that is brought to our attention here, and it's very important. Now, I feel like that there are some folk today that more or less grit their teeth, and they say, yes, I'll obey him. But the motive is not love. It's like the little boy, that is, mama made him sit in a chair in the corner, and face in the corner, you know. And she heard a disturbance in the corner, and she said to him, "'Willie, are you sitting down?' And he says, "'Yes, ma'am, but I'm standing up on the inside of me.'" And I think there are a lot of God's children today. They're obeying outwardly some little rules and regulations. And that's another reason that I oppose all the gimmicks today, for living the Christian life, that it's some sort of a philosophy and if you follow some gimmicks. And they attempt to follow it, but they are standing up on the inside of them. They're not doing it because they love the Lord Jesus. And friends, when you solve that problem and you love him and you want to obey him because you love him, then, may I say, a great deal of the marital problems will be solved today. A great deal of the uncertainty that you have in your own heart. And that's the reason this type of thing is so popular today. If you start talking on how to live the Christian life, while well, people come running, and if they're given a lot of gimmicks to follow, and a great many people like to lean on something, even if it is a poor, broken reed. They want to lean on it. But that won't help you, it won't hold you up. It's based today on a love relationship. You see, salvation is a love affair. And John's going to tell us about it a little later. We love him because he first loved us. Now, we're told here in verse 15, love not the world. Now, what world is he talking about here? He does not mean the world of creation. That is, the system and the order that you find in creation today. In spring, the flowers bloom and the trees put out leaves. And then in the fall, the leaves begin to turn all kinds of beautiful colors like yellow and gold and red. Then they fall off and winter comes and all of that. That's not the world that we're not to love. We're to love that world. God created it. It's God's creation. And we are to do that. The poet says, What is so rare as a day in June, when heaven tries earth, if it be in tune, and over it softly her warm ear lays? And whether we look or whether we listen, we hear life murmur or see it glisten. Now, you know, I said that by memory. I haven't repeated that in years. I learned that when I was in grammar school. And that has always stuck with me. My birthday's in June, and so I just always think in June how wonderful it is. How wonderful nature is. And somebody's put it like this. Heaven above is softer blue. Earth beneath is sweeter green. Something lives in every hue. Christless eyes... "...have never seen, birds with gladder songs o'erflow, flowers with deeper beauty shine, since I know, as now I know, I am His, and He is mine." Isn't that a lovely thing? That today, because He's the Creator, we can love this physical creation, so He doesn't mean that. Well, there is another way that he's not talking about. He's not talking about humanity here, that is, mankind, because we're told God so loved the world. The world of what? People, human beings, if you please, that he gave his only begotten Son. Well, what does he mean? Well, he's talking here about this world system that you and I are in today, and Believe me, there is a world system today, and it's satanic. And he mentions it in the 14th chapter of the Gospel of John in verse 30. Let me read that. Hereafter, he says, I will not talk much with you, for the prince of this world cometh, and he hath nothing in me. The prince of this world. Of the world what? The world system. This civilization that you and I are in today, with all of its governments, they belong to Satan. This system does. He offered the Lord Jesus the kingdoms of this world. And I don't think he left out the United States when he made the offer. It all belongs to him. And we're not to love this world today. And he mentions it again over here in the 16th chapter, verse 11. He says, "...of judgment..." because the prince of this world is Jud. Again, the system that is satanic that is in this world today. And we are told over in Ephesians, the second chapter, and I want to turn there, and by the way, when he speaks there of the foundation of the world in verse 4 Of chapter 1, he's talking there about the material creation. But when you come over to chapter 2, at verse 2, he says, "...in which in times past ye walked according to the course of this world." What is the course of this world? Well, this is a world today that's filled with greed, with selfish ambition, with fleshly pleasures, and with deceit, and lying, and danger that's the world that you and I live in today and he says to us love not this world and you are going to be obedient to one world or the other you are either going to obey the world system today and live in it and enjoy it or else you're going to obey god will you listen to paul as he speaks in galatians the 6th chapter verse 14, let me read this to you, "...but God forbid that I should glory, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world." Paul says, "...there stands between me and this world system today, this satanic system of cross." And both are bidding for me. And I, as a child of God, I am obedient unto him. And I glory in the cross of Christ. And you can be sure of one thing. The world today is not glorying in the cross of Christ at all. Now, Peter speaks of this same thing in the second chapter of Second Peter, verse 20. He says, for if after ye have escaped the pollutions of the world, the pollutions. And then he spoke before of the corruptions of the world. You and I live in a world that is corrupted and polluted. And we are hearing so much today about air pollution and water pollution. How about the mind polluted today by all of the pornography? and all of the vile language. How about the spirit of man that's being dulled by these things? We are not to love the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father's not in him. You can't run with the devil's crowd all week and then run with the Lord's crowd on Sunday. You may run with them. But you sure are out of place, my friend. That's just something that you can't do. Now, we're in the world, but we're not of the world. And we have to move into the business world, many of us. Many of us have to move into even a social realm. But we don't have to be part of that social realm. He says, if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. In other words... A child of God today, as Paul was caught up in this, he said, I've discovered in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. And what I would not do, I'm doing it. Because he found out there's no power in the new nature. And he says, what I want to do, the new nature wants to do. That old nature balks at it. And that old nature backslides and will not do that thing so that there is a real conflict that will go on in the heart of the Christian as long as he's in the world with that old nature, because that old nature is geared to this world in which we live. It's meshed in to the program of the world.